Hey, this is Tiffany Aurora. Welcome back to the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. Mike Drucker is joining me today. Get ready for an absolutely fantastic conversation. But hey, if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll take a second to follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Following the show is free, it's quick, it's easy, it's fun. Well, I don't know if it's fun, but you'll get notifications when new episodes come out, which I think is fun. Anyway, it's a great way to support the show, and I would really appreciate it. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify are also appreciated. All right, let's get the show on the road. Mike Drucker is an eight-time Emmy-nominated writer and comedian living in New York. He's written for The Tonight Show, Bill Nye Saves the World, and Adam Ruins Everything, as well as serving as head writer and executive producer on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. He's full of good stories. He'll make you laugh. And in this conversation, we talked about everything from what keeps comedians in the game for the long haul, to why he chooses to embrace kindness in his comedy, to the best Christmas gift he ever received from his parents. This is such a good episode. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the fabulous Mike Drucker. All right, so I'm very excited to welcome Mike Drucker to the Entrepreneurs and Artists podcast. Mike, welcome. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. This is my voice when I talk. So I wanted to start by asking you if you could take us back to one of your first memories of making other people laugh. I'm sure you've had many from your childhood, but you ended up pursuing this road of being a comedian and writing and producing all of this content. And I was just wondering if you could take us back and share with us a story of one of those first memories you had where you made somebody else laugh. Of course. As a, as a little kid, I didn't know I wanted to be a comedian, but for some reason, as a little kid, I was like obsessed with joke books, you know, like dinosaur jokes or, you know, stuff like that, that they'd make for kids. And two distinct memories I have. Once when I was like three or four, I tried to make up my own joke that I know was that like, th and this story was told before I became a comedian. So I actually believe it. It's not one of those family stories that you're like, was this made up after the fact? Right. Um, but apparently I wrote or told a joke that was, uh, what do you do when you see a penguin throw a tomato at it? And it really, it, it, you can see where a child's like, I like trying to figure out what a joke structure is. Yeah. Um, and I and that got a laugh, but I think it got a laugh by virtue of the fact that I was a little boy trying to tell a joke that I made up. <laughs> um, but I remember that. And I also uh, remember I did like a talent contest in elementary school where I just read from a joke book and it went fine. But that's probably the earliest I can remember. So how do you, how do you develop your material now? What's the process like for you? You know, it, it depends on what it is. If it's for writing for a TV show, I have a different process than stand up. As far as stand up goes, usually I'll take notes in my phone, um, sort of like this topic or this idea or this kernel of an idea. And then I will go to like Google Docs and I'll just try to write as much as I can on it. 
And from there, I sort of sift through it to find if anything that I wrote's good, sort of like power writing a first mm. draft and then sort of being like, oh, this paragraph could be a joke or this could be. So that's usually how I do stand up. It seems to me like the process of trying out jokes and getting audience feedback could be a bit brutal at times. So I'm I'm a writer. I write sci-fi fantasy. And oh, cool. and so of course there is there's an editing process that goes into writing novels, right? But it's it's pretty normal for writers like me to definitely not share a first draft and probably not share, you know, the sixth or seventh or eighth draft. We workshop it quite a bit before we start getting feedback into the structure of the story and, and line edits and all that good stuff. So what, what is that like, like on a day to day basis? Because I know that you you go out and you actually are, are telling jokes, right? And you're you're getting audience feedback and that's helping you craft your sets. Yeah, absolutely. And at times it can be, you know, for that very reason you said difficult where you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to try out this new joke. The audience is too small or they seem like they're in a bad mood or I don't know if I want to try out this new joke. The audience is too big and they seem like they're in a great mood. Um, <laughs> you sort of you sort of definitely have that problem of like making, you know, making excuses to not show what is a first draft. And there's no way to not for it to not be a first draft, even if you right. practice it on your friends or if you run it by someone. That's different than doing it live in front of an audience. So you, it, it's kind of like you almost have to get over yourself a little bit. And I don't mean that in a mean way, because it's something that I have to do even now, having done this for a while, like I have to get over myself and be like, just tell it. If it's bad, we'll switch to an old one that works. But it's, it's, it, it is a struggle because I, I think I have the same thing you do. I don't want to show off my first draft. I want like everyone to be impressed by how polished and solid it is right off the bat. I want to be good right away. And that's just not the way it works. So one of the things that I've noticed about comedians over the years is that as a general rule of thumb, I feel like y'all are incredibly deep thinkers and you have very keen observation skills. And I'm sure this is part of this is just the process of what allows you to glean material from your everyday life. But I was wondering, how have you shaped or sort of cultivated your observation skills? I mean, were those like... Do you feel like that was pretty strong, something you had innately when you were younger? Have you worked on it over the years? What has that been like um, for you? I think I had a, a, like a couple things that helped me with it. I, as a kid, you know, I was a pretty lonely kid and an awkward kid, and I'm still a pretty awkward adult. And I think I really learned to like sort of watch how people responded, you know, like almost trying to tr train myself to look for visual cues of how people are feeling emotionally. So I think as a kid, I... When I say I developed a sense of empathy, I don't mean like I was a kind little boy going around helping people. I mean, like I was very good at sussing out the vibe of a moment. Mm. And that itself helps you because you can sort of like you're like pulling apart certain things. So I think I was very observational as a kid. Again, when you're very lonely as a kid, you you are very observational as a, mat uh, as a matter of course. Yeah. And in college, I was an English major and a journalism major, and I got my master's degree in English. And all three of those I mean, both of those English and journalism require a lot of looking beneath the surface. Even if you're writing an essay on Beowulf for a college 101 class, it's about observing what's in it, commenting on what's in it, extrapolating information from what's in it. And I know that, you know, a lot of people crap on liberal arts degrees, but I really do think my background, I was able to sort of use the whole buffalo to create a comedy career. What would you say your relationship is like with blank space? 
And I ask what's behind this question is something I like to ask artists in general, because I, I feel as though we need a couple of things in life, right? To create new art. We need a certain amount of blank space, this, you know, space that we can explore where we just get new inputs, where we're not necessarily trying to do any particular thing, but it's just open, right? And that's the space where we get to create. And then we also, on the other side of that, we need a certain amount of structure because we have to actually do the work, whatever the work looks like for us given yeah. the the art form that we have embraced and I, I i just see people in all different sides of the spectrum and i'm just curious so what does your relationship with blank space look like and how do you sort of wrestle with the tension of making sure you have enough structure that you're getting out you're developing new material you're doing the work but that you're also sort of holding sacred a certain amount of blank space the amount that you need a really tough question. That's a really tough. I, I have not put a lot of thought into that. I do need some structure. I think I'm good at, you know, what, you know, what it is. I'm very good at generating ideas within the blank space, but executing mm. the ideas. I need structure okay. and it does not work the other way around. Like if I'm in a very structured setting, it's actually harder for me to generate ideas. But if I'm in a very sort of loosey goosey setting, it's very hard for me to finish ideas. Like I was working on a project last year that, you know, I was like, when do you want this? project the project hasn't been announced yet but when do you want this thing and they were like oh you know whenever you know end of the year maybe and I was like can you give me a solid date because I need to know when I'm gonna start panicking and that'll yeah. be like you know the acceleration of writing yep, yep. um so I definitely like I you know I struggle to write stuff for myself if there's not a, a carrot at the end of the stick or a, even a stick saying you know you have one month left you know writing samples writing a even like a movie for myself I find difficult just because when I do have a deadline that thing feels more pressing it feels more important so oddly it's like the blank space gets me the idea the structure gets me to actually make the idea if if you're working on something that doesn't have an external deadline are you able to sort of conjure up one for yourself terrible at it I'm terrible I try me too absolutely <laughs> I basically the deadline and when that happens the deadline is I've received a third email about it <laughs> okay okay yeah 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 it's funny how that external that external pressure really can help yeah so I was I was thumbing through your your sub stack you don't really thumb through someone's sub stack but that's what I was doing we're gonna we're gonna go with it and uh, I <laughs> I have to ask you about gifts you receive for Christmas and and specifically if maybe you could tell us about one of the best gifts you've ever received from your parents for Christmas <laughs> because there's some there's some good stuff on there you know uh, uh to preface the story my parents you know my parent growing up my parents and I didn't have the best relationship and we have a much better relationship now. And my parents are people that even though they don't have a ton of money, they like to buy random gifts. It's their love language is to be like, oh, you know, I was thinking of you. So I sent you this Amazon thing, which is very nice. And I do very much appreciate that they do it. Mm -hmm. But they almost always buy something that is like, you know what they were thinking, but you're you're, you're like, you didn't consider that I live in a one bedroom apartment. Like one time my dad got me like a three foot tall, you know, like sort of metal T-Rex sculpture someone made. And I, and I was like, what am, I have to get rid of this now. And, and like, I feel bad because I like sort of looked up the artist website and I was like, this was like $200 or something. But, and, and I didn't say anything. I wasn't rude about it. I wasn't like, it's a problem all of the kids face. Like we've all, we've all tried to gently been like, Hey, you don't need to send us gifts. Or if you do send us a gift, because all three of us, all three of their kids live in big cities. 
Mm. Um, it's sort of like make it small. If you're going to send the gift, we appreciate it, but keep it small because it's not that we're trying to send. It's not like how dare you buy something for me or I sure. didn't want this. I wanted a car. It's much more <laughs> like you almost get this sense of guilt because you're like you spent money on something that I have to remove from my place just because there's nowhere for it. And they and by the way, they don't know. We have asked if this is a bit and they have been confused that we thought so. <laughs> so it's not a bit. It's not a joke. It's not parents being like, oh, this is a fun way to, to mess with our kids. Last Christmas was the first Christmas I'd been home for a couple of years. So that was nice because, you know, COVID and whatnot. And usually at sort of like my mom or my dad will hide big presents behind the back of a tree. And, you know, as kids, that was like if you got like a Super Nintendo or something. You know, now it's more like a blender, you know, <laughs> love those so, blenders. Yeah. But so there was this giant box. There were two giant boxes for for me and my brother. And, you know, my parents were like, all right, you know, open those. And immediately when I saw it was a giant box, I was like, whatever this is, I'm is going to make my life harder. And so I open it up and it is a massive, massive, massive body pillow. <laughs> Like almost like like almost like like not like a it's not like a like a like a bedroll, but kind of the size of one massive body pillow covered in like clip arty video game controllers, like no specific brand, just like video game controllers. And in like an 80s digital font across the top of it, it just says Michael. And <laughs> it, 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 it was broke personalized me just for it you. It was personalized. It broke me in this way because it was so ridiculous. It was like if an alien where like if like an alien was like, well, we know that he likes video games and he obviously sleeps. So we'll give him a thing <laughs> with his name on it and video games like it, it was it broke me in a way where it's one of the few times in my life like I couldn't stop laughing. And part of it was madness. Like, I think that was like the first time I understood like what someone in a novel in the 1800s was like when they're laughing during a lightning storm. That was like the first time I understood that feeling. Do, do you know in moments like that, oh, this is gold, you know, like this material, I'm going to take this. This is going to become a bit. It's it's totally there. Or does that come completely later for you? It, it comes in the moment in the sense of you're like, I got to remember this. Or I'll note it down. It's not like, inspiration strikes i gotta run it's more like yeah, yeah. this is gonna be something hopefully yeah my boyfriend and i were in new york a couple of weeks ago we saw you perform at i think it was the eastville comedy club in in brooklyn and uh you had a bit i won't i won't give away the ending in case folks want to come see you perform um but i, I think I, I referenced it in my email to you that it's yeah. it's become part of our everyday vernacular which is which is fantastic and so if, fo if folks were going to come to new york if they wanted to see you or they just were unfamiliar with the comedy scene in new york city and they were trying to find a really good comedy venue which ones would you suggest that's a that's a great question. Uh, it, it really depends on, you know, what you want to see. If you're like sort of if you want to see like kind of movie star comedians or slightly like when I say older, I don't mean that disparagingly, but sort of like the Chris Rocks or the Jerry Seinfelds. Mm -hmm. Comedy Cellar is really the big place to go. Now, the problem is that a lot of the big celebrities are dropping people. So sometimes you'll have maybe eight people you don't know. And then Sometimes you'll have like three movie stars drop in and talk for 20 minutes and it's amazing. It's a really good club though. Even the people you don't know are good. It's just sort of if you if you want that like sort of traditional club feeling stand up is Comedy Cellar. Mm -hmm. I would say Union Hall, Bell House are great for like if you if you like more of sort of an alt comedy style, like that's where a lot of the good, I don't want to say younger shows and I don't mean that disparagingly, but you get what I mean. Newer comedians sure. having sort of hipper shows. 
So it kind of depends on what you're looking for. It's right now a little hard to find improv or sketch though. So if you want to see improv mm. or sketch, you would need to do your own research. Unfortunately, like UCB, The Pit, The Magnet, those are all these amazing improv theaters that kind of eroded away during the pandemic. I took classes at The Magnet years ago. I lived in New York about a decade ago. And uh, yeah, that's a great place. Yeah. So one of the things that I really like about your form of comedy is that you have a way of not disparaging people or being mean or cutting, or at least I haven't seen all your work, of course. Yeah. But but what I have seen of it, you know, you're very good at observing sort of the ironies of life, but you do it in a way that still sort of maintains people's humanity and celebrates that. And I don't see that from all comedians. And it's um it's you know it's not meant to to grade comedy. Everyone oh, yeah. has their own preferences. But I was curious, is has that been kind of a purposeful thing for you? Because I, it, that's not not the case with all comedians and it's something I really like about your work it's purposeful but it's not necessarily moralistic it's more where where I find more comfort in the comedy like I don't I'm a good joke writer I don't like writing roast jokes I don't like mm. I've turned down writing for roast battles and it has nothing to do with disliking the people involved comedians I absolutely love who go on those shows it's just there's something for me where writing an accurate insult or being mean in an accurate way. And by accurate, I mean, like, if you're overweight, making direct fat jokes. I don't know, to me, it, it sometimes bums me out. It, it bums me out. I don't like being insulted. Uh, I don't find it fun. Ironically, I've done a few compliment shows and I've done very well on those. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it's, I'm more comfortable really making fun of myself. I've also never, I've never really enjoyed sort of the subgenre of comedy, which is like someone says something like, uh, and then my wife said this and they like hold the mic aside and do a face like they're reacting mm -hmm. or sort of like, I'm the only normal person on earth. Everyone else is an idiot. And I've never felt that way. I've always felt like this alien who's detached from humanity, even as a little kid. And so I think there's a lot more of my misunderstandings and my errors that I can mind. Like I've def I definitely have one or two jokes that are mean about something, but usually it's like an amorphous doctor or like I never, like when I talk about a sex joke or a relationship joke, I kind of anonymize it as much as possible and leave out any details that that mm -hmm. person might ever hear just because mm -hmm. I just don't want to like hurt an ex's feelings if I tell a joke about a funny thing she did once. You know what sure. I mean? Sure. So yeah, so yeah, usually it's it's sort of directed at myself just out of comfort, actually. Have you found that being a comedian changes the way you experience the world? That's a good question. I think for the first few years, yes, in the sense that you're obsessed with comedy. So you're like, mm -hmm. everything is material for me. You know, like when you're in those like, <laughs> those like artsy first years when you're like, this is my world now. And I think either I've acclimated to it or that initial like, obsession to the extent of seeing everything through the the lens of comedy we've all met people who like just want to talk about being comedians but I think it has I mean I think it has at least in terms of like what it's given what it's given me like I feel like I'm I, I think it's like not just like help my self-esteem but it's the fact that like I feel like I do something cool which makes me feel cooler I don't know if like the act of doing comedy makes me view the world differently than I did before maybe it's the reverse where the way I viewed the world before helps me do comedy though Mm, yeah. If someone listening to the show 
was curious about trying their hand at a stand-up routine. Not that they have any plans, let's say, to go professional, but it, maybe it's, I hear this a lot from people who are like, oh, I, I think I could do stand-up. I think I'd like to give it a try, but they don't ever actually do it. How would you recommend that somebody just dip their toe in the water and actually try it out? I mean, the only way to try it out is to 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 try it out, to do an open mic. And I think the advice I'd give is do an open mic and be aware that it's it's not going to go well. Mm. And I don't mean that it's going to be a bad time or you're going to feel awful or you specifically are a bad comedian. I mean, in the sense of everyone remembers how to ride a bike, but when you first get on that bike, you probably fall off. And so it's really a practice. Like anything, it's a practice. And you just have to accept the fact that one, you have to do it. Nobody's going to ask you to do it. Like maybe if you're mm. the funny guy at work, someone will ask you to give a speech at a meeting. That's not really stand up that's giving a funny speech at a meeting you really need to do like an open mic in front of a crowd whether that be a cafe that does an open mic with musicians and comedians or a comedy club if you're in a remote area unfortunately you might even need to start one yourself but the only way to really do it is unfortunately to do it which sucks i imagine that that process of getting to the point where jokes really start to land i imagine it would take a, a while or maybe yeah. not maybe it's natural for some people but in my head that's I, I sort of picture, I picture it taking a while. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the first person to make this observation, but, you know, I feel like it's a, a little bit like medical school where, you know, like it takes a couple years before you really know how to cut. And that's a long time, a long time to stick with something where you're getting that public feedback on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who are a couple of the comedians that you really admire and what is it about them that you respect? Man, I really admire Janine Garofalo live. Um, she does something which I love, which is, and I don't know if she often does Eastville as well. So I don't know if she was on the same show I was that you saw, but she kind of like, she lets her set wander in a way that I find so invigorating because it's in the moment. Something I really like about standup is that it's a live performance. And one of the reasons that, you know, I haven't pursued doing, you know, like taping myself and putting an hour online is because I really like that live element. And I sometimes feel like something's lost in the translation to the screen of it. That's not a criticism of anybody. It's just more the way my brain works. And okay. she, when she's on stage, she will jump from thing to thing and sometimes think of something in the moment and go on an entirely different tangent. And it really feels like you're watching someone who's extremely funny, just talking in a way that, I don't know, it, 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 I find it sort of invigorating, inspiring. Todd Berry, definitely, I love his joke structure. You know, his way of taking time. I wish I had the ability like him to like go slow because a lot of his humor is like him sort of like, you know, the audience is kind of like a little bit ahead of him as he's talking, but in, in a way that he's controlling. Mm. I really love him. Pat Oswalt's definitely a big influence. And like, you know, he's been kind enough in the past to like, I've opened for him, which has been great. And, you know, and then there's people who've like helped my career. Like uh, this woman, Megan Gantz, who's later, later became like a producer on Modern Family, helped get me at the onion as a freelancer oh, and awesome. Seth Myers hired me the first time I was ever like just a writer on something, not an assistant who got to send jokes, not a, you know, friend who got to like pitch some ideas. The first time I was ever hired as just a writer on something was Seth, Seth Myers. He hired me to write for uh, the ESPN awards. I don't know much about sports, so I just crammed for a month beforehand, but it was the first <laughs> time I'd ever been hired just as a writer. And what did you learn about sports? 
other than the fact that maybe you uh you don't like them um oh man my mind is there was like it was like 10 years ago my mind is oh, so okay. empty of those it was it was <laughs> like it, it was like if you never went to a required class in college so you're uh-huh. just like i'm gonna learn i'm gonna learn it all in one in <laughs> a few weeks before the exam i'm gonna learn all of the things about all the sports it's gonna be great right Luckily, my dad and my brother are big sports fans. So I was like, what are the big events this year? What are the big scandals? It was a good learning experience, though. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever do you ever tell jokes now about sports? Or is that like a, an area that you just don't touch? Um, I think I occasionally have one or two. But again, they're about like me as like a little kid. I don't have anything like about modern sports. And really, my sports knowledge that I do have ends with me leaving my home at 18. Like everything that I know about sports comes from just like, my dad and my brother having sports on the TV all the time. I want to ask you this question. And (laughs) we were talking about things that sound mean. I hope this doesn't sound mean, but I want to ask you about one of your most difficult stand-up nights. And the reason that I'm asking you about this is you don't need to like actually like go through the night, but it's very common just in the arts world and in the entrepreneurship world to try things that just completely and utterly fail. And one of the things that I admire so much about comedians like yourself is the fact that you do that on a, not that you fail on a regular basis, but that you're trying material out in front of a live audience and you're getting that feedback and often it doesn't fly, right? Often the joke doesn't land and that's just part of the gig. And so you've learned how to sort of wrestle with that. And so I imagine you have like some tips and some tricks about like, how do you navigate the emotions that come with a night where a bunch of the jokes just didn't land with that particular audience? And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk us through that a little bit, because I think there's a lot that artists and entrepreneurs could learn from that and take into their own work. Sure. You know, and and these are what I'm about to say are lessons or tips that I still struggle with or I still try to remember, because, you know, no matter how far you get in this, if you have a real bad show, it still feels bad. Even if you like have a more logical view of what went wrong, which comes with experience, you're still like, man, that was a painful time. Yeah. Um, I'd say, first of all, in the moment, the worst thing you can do is panic and the audience can see you panic. You know, if you start like sweating, I know I'm prone to this, but a lot of people are prone to like talking twice as fast if they think it's not going well. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of the the audience will feel your energy. And, you know, there's different kinds of bombs. There's a difference between an audience that's drunk and rowdy or versus an audience that's completely disinterested. And you handle those different ways. What you really need to be doing, though, is observing the room. It's very easy when you're bombing to sort of turn inward and be like, I'm doing this wrong. I got to do this. I got to get them back. I got to get them back and sort of think of yourself. You know, sometimes you'll like look around and maybe everyone's getting the check at that moment. And, oh, you're not bombing. You just need to like sort of slow it up until people are paying attention a little more. Or, you know, this specific table's laughing. So maybe you can sort of anchor onto that, talk to them a little bit, not be mean to them, but like talk to them a little bit and then bring everyone else out. I have a couple jokes at my own expense when I'm bombing that I have sort of like in my pocket because like one of the things I say and one of the things I say if a set's like not going well or you know sometimes like we were talking about with a new bit I will be crushing it for three or four minutes and then I'll do a new bit and it's it just crickets and that's not the audience's fault they were clearly on board with me I just happened to lose them and in situations like that I kind of say something along the lines of like guys I I also know this is weird like, I know this is going weird for everybody <laughs> you just because I also right think out. sometimes audiences are like, are we doing something wrong or this person's not perfect, like not professional, like you'd call a mechanic, but almost like, look at this loser. And weirdly, I think 
just as human beings, if you owe up the fact that something's not going as well for you as you'd like, people kind of have more sympathy for you. Not complain. Don't be like, what's wrong with you? Or nobody's laughing. That I hate. And I see comedians do that a lot. Or to be like, you guys don't like me. Like, mm. I don't like that just because unless it's a rowdy audience that wants like a Bill Burr style antagonism relationship, it's only going to make the audience quieter because they're going to feel like you're mad at them for them not liking your product. You know, like, I just don't like, like, you know, oh, you I guess, I guess you guys don't like that one. To me, it's just, it's sweeter and more fun to be like, like, you know, there's, you, you know, I'll do a joke and it'll bomb and I'll go like, I think I'm going to give that a B plus, you know, like something that sort of acknowledges <laughs> it didn't go well, but folds it back into me. So the audience is like, oh, okay. He understands that we're confused. Cause I think if the audience knows that, you know, and you're still a little bit calm and in control about it, you might not win them back. You might not kill with them, but you won't leave them feeling either confused, bad or mad. I mean, it reminds me of just the, the phrase, um, you know, take the work seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And some comedians take themselves so seriously, you know, when they're like, we're the last philosophers. It's like, no, there's there's still philosophers. They write a lot of books. They just don't get up on stage and perform and make people laugh. Right. Exactly. It's always like and there's a there's a comic strip about this, but it's always like, you know, like comedians will be like, you know, we're the last real truth tellers. We're the final, you know, we're the last free speech bastion. And then on stage, they'll be like, my wife is so fat, you know, and you're like, OK, you don't you're not a you're you're not saying anything. How how do you get yourself into a headspace where you are bringing into a room the level of energy or the type of energy that you want? Because you mentioned energy levels earlier. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, how do you do that? Because I imagine that there's a certain a certain level of sort of assessing the vibe that's already there. But sometimes you have to kind of manufacture it a little bit in any sort of performance. How do you do yeah. that? You know, I try to I try to open up kind of cheerfully. I don't dive right in. I kind of like open a little slower just so the audience acclimates to me. And as far as like getting myself in a headspace, a lot of it's just watching the show so far. You kind of can adjust little knobs in your head where you're like, okay, this person, they're not laughing at anything but this person's dirty joke. So that's something to keep in mind. Or this group closed, like shut down immediately when the comedian started talking to them, even though the comedian was friendly. Or they absolutely went nuts at a local reference or something. And it's not that you imitate that, but you're sort of observing. And like I said, like as a little kid, I could get the vibe of people. I kind of try to get in the headspace of like, what does this audience need? What does this audience want? And what is the Venn diagram of what I want to give and what they want to have? How much do you end up changing your set based on sort of first impressions of an audience when you walk into a room? Pretty often. I mean, you know, pretty often I'll leave something out if I don't think it's going to work. Or there have been times when I've been like, all right, uh, this audience seems okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try this new thing. I didn't expect to try, you know, I'm going to try this like half-baked idea and see where it goes. Cause this is, this is a decent show. Yeah. You, you, I, at least for me, I, I, I take things in and, and pull things out on the fly, which again, might be why I like Janine Garofalo so much. Cause she's mm. sort of a master of doing that. And you mentioned comedians being philosophers. I've heard, I've heard that comparison before. And I mean, I definitely, I see where it comes from in the sense of comedians really can sort of poke at things that are happening in culture in a way that I think when it's done well, it opens up a conversation that's really hard to have in other, um, in other ways. Yeah. Is like, how, how do you approach that? Do you, um, 
I mean, do you ever purposefully think like, okay, this is, this is like a big conversation today. I want to, to weave this into the set that I'm doing, or like, I want to explore emotions of, you know, like any particular emotion, like connection or loneliness or depression or whatever the case may be. Like, are you, are you conscious about wanting to weave certain themes or threads into your work? Or does that just sort of, just sort of happen? Sometimes, sometimes it happens. I should put more effort into weaving in themes. I think because because my comedy, at least in terms of stand up, tends to be a little like more, I guess you could say, aw shucks, goofy. <laughs> um, there's less of me being like there's less there's less space, I think, for for my stage persona to sort of be like, we've had a lot of fun, but we need to talk about, you know, X, Y, Z. And I've worked on I've written for a lot of shows that kind of have that. And I can do that. I think just as a performer, I just like my onstage persona doesn't necessarily carry that well, uh, which is ironic because I can totally write that way and I totally feel that way. I just don't really feel myself as a performer presenting that way. But yeah, you know, like I've definitely I've definitely like incorporated things or made like side jokes that are kind of like, you know, hinting at not a message, but like hinting at the way I feel about something. But I don't really do what's it's very weird because I've written for a ton of political comedy shows, but I don't do a lot of like political stand up or issues based mm -hmm. stand up. I did. I do, ha however, like try to avoid certain things like I don't think that I'm going to be the one that solves police violence. So I'm not going to be like the edge lord comedian who's like, I'm going to do my cops joke. Mm, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like maybe maybe that's what I'm saying is like I, you know, themes are there when I try, but I'm not like someone who's trying to pat myself on the back for it, despite mm -hmm having written for some political shows. I was always just curious about that. How, how did you develop your persona then? <laughs> you know, what's funny is I actually early on wanted to be one of those like angry sort of like did ranty you? comedians. I did. Really? I, yeah, I, it wasn't like, it was almost like I did my first open mics. It wasn't like I came on stage with that energy, but like my first year or so is like, I really did think, man, I'm going to be like a truth teller. And it just, I don't know, it wasn't quite working. Even when it was working, it didn't feel like, I was sort of having fun with it like I wanted to. And over time, like I kind of just like noticed little patterns in myself that both seemed audience seemed to like, and I seemed to feel comfortable or I felt comfortable doing or enjoyed myself. And you kind of develop a persona after a while. You know, it's not like a character where I'm just doing one specific thing, but it is sort of an exaggerated quasi fictionalized version of me. You post a depressing quote of the day yeah. online. Yeah. What's, this, what's the story behind that? Since I was a little kid, I've suffered from depression. It wasn't diagnosed until later, but definitely as a little kid, I was like depressed. And so I think I've always just lived within it. And it's not that I find depressing things necessarily outrageously funny or anything, but I always... I've always been interested in the way that like we avoid depressing things, you know, and I get mm. it. They're unpleasant, but there's a sense of like chicken soup for the soul, inspirational quotes, feel better <laughs> about yourself. And not that people need to feel worse about themselves, but I feel like sometimes we bottle up a lot of the sadness. And to me, it's more cathartic to almost dive into it, you know, to dive into exploring the sadness, to uh, reflect on the sadness. And I think that's you know, because of my emotional matrix, I was, I've been depressed for decades. It helps me. It, it helps me. It sort of helps me analyze it by diving into it. It actually helps me deal with it better. I've heard it said that we can't selectively numb emotions. So, you know, our ability to feel sadness uh, is, is sort of a reflection of how deeply we'll be able to feel things like happiness and joy. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's just, it's just interesting that you've, you've chosen to, I don't know if celebrate it is the right word, but to, to elevate it. In, yeah, in explore a sense. it.
Yeah. 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 I think that's really cool, actually. Thank you. Do you um do you ever use that as kind of the basis for a set or for for oh, jokes sure. that you're gonna do? Absolutely. I've definitely talked about uh being depressed on stage. Sometimes to the point where I've like, you know, I've been like, oh, I, I need to pull back from that. <laughs> as you see as you see the mood in the room going down, 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 down. <laughs> yeah, like I used to have a joke that was something along the lines of like, as a child, I had the energy of a Disney actor who killed himself. And, and I noticed audiences not on board with it. And I was like, all right, that that's very funny for me. And maybe if I ever became like a famous star where the audience is like, we want specifically that I could bring it back, but mm -mm, normal audiences are not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now I have to ask you, it's this, it's the stupidest question, but if you were going to be a Disney character, which one would you be? (laughs) Uh, honestly, honestly, probably, uh, goofy. Just Would because you? <laughs> it's just such a fun, it's just a, I love a good fun idiot. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. I love a good natured kind of confident idiot. So I think, I think like of the core Disney cast, I would be goofy. I could see you nailing that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. What are some of the commonalities that you notice amongst comedians that have sort of excelled in their craft over a long period of time? That's a good question. I would say obviously like, keeping at it systematically, like a lot of people peter off or they don't do it as much. So that's really important. Yeah. I mean, honestly, for a lot of them, it's just not giving up. It's Mm. just not giving up, which you want to do all the time, even when it's going well, because you'll be like, I don't, I don't want to leave my home to do a set at 11 PM on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very easy to sort of give up on it. So I would say not giving up is very important. And that's probably something they all share. I I also think that there's sort of, you know, there is some sort of main character syndrome where you're like, I'm I'm sort of the one who's observing interesting things. So, you know, we can be a little bit self-obsessed, you could say. I wouldn't say like arrogantly narcissistic, though that does apply to some comedians. But I think there's a sense of you, at the very least, you kind of have to like trust in yourself as an observer, even if it's an observer of yourself. I'm probably mm. making no sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I th- I think I follow because there there is, I mean, going back to your first comment, certainly I think is a general rule of thumb. The things in life that tend to be most meaningful are things that are hard. Yes. There's, I think there's just something innately with us, within us as humans where we want to do hard things. Now, we don't necessarily yeah. enjoy doing the hard thing in the moment that we're doing it. But afterwards, and especially if it's something that we're building some level of expertise in, over the course of time there's something that is so deeply satisfying about hard work that you just don't get when things are easier yeah absolutely and and the ability to get back on the horse after a big failure i think is important you know we've all had giant bombs that were embarrassing and it's easy to quit then or it's easy to give up then or pull back so that's another thing is and it's again i don't want to say tenacity because i don't want to make it all you know horatio algers type stuff but it is a lot of like understanding and respecting that at times it's going to be very bad and you have to allow the very bad to happen if any of the very good's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, I kind of want to highlight that again. You have to allow the bad to happen in order for the good to happen. That's so yeah. true. And so freaking hard in the moment. Painful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, your human psyche is like, you know, uh, built to be like, hey, remember when everyone was mad at us when we talked to them last night? Let's not keep talking to people. Like, you know, it's very easy for you to not want to do it after something like that. Yeah. 
Well, if our listeners wanted to come see you perform or find your work online, where where should they go? You can find me on Twitter at Mike Drucker, on Instagram at Mike Drucker is dead. Usually if it's I'll post about I'll, I'll try to post more about shows. Sometimes when I do local shows, I don't post about it. But usually on there, you can find out. And, you know, Mike Drucker comes up first on Google, I think so. Yep. Yep, <laughs> I don't yep. know if that helps. <laughs> I was able to find you online, so. Yeah. <laughs> and M- Mike Drucker is dead. What's what's the story behind that one? Um, the on moniker. Instagram, Mike Drucker was already taken. Oh, okay. And, and I just, I just, that was what came to mind. And then like when I started making like other accounts, like when I made sort of like a, a like comedy work email, I used it. It just felt like a good backup when Mike Drucker, just the words Mike Drucker are taken. It's very memorable. Thank you. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll put the the link to your website in the show notes. So if folks want to find you, find your work online, they can do that quite easily. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah.